Welcome to The Art of Leadership, the podcast where we talk to diverse and prominent leaders about how the humanities informs their leadership. I'm your host, Norman Sandridge, and our guest today is Nadia Hashimi. Nadia is a pediatrician and internationally best-selling novelist whose titles include The Pearl That Broke Its Shell, When the Moon is Low, and A House Without Windows. Recently, Nadia was a Democratic candidate for the House of Representatives from Maryland's 6th Congressional District. We'll be talking with her today about how she came to identify as a leader, what lessons she learned from the campaign trail, and how she would like to see the story of America told in the future. Welcome, Nadia, and thank you for taking the time today to share your experiences with us. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yay. All right. Um, Well, uh, to, to, to me, the, the, the most interesting place uh, to begin is with the, the launch of your political career. And as I, I followed this and uh, got to know a lot about uh, you and, and your experiences, I learned, you know, this was sort of uh, you, 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 you took a big bite out of a big apple at the, at the very beginning uh, to launch, uh, launch your political career by running for the House of Representatives. And, and I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about kind of the decision-making process there when uh, you, you, you came to seek this leadership role. Sure. This was, um, it was definitely a leap for me to imagine myself running for this particular seat. Um, What had been happening is that I'd been watching what was happening around me, understanding that the issues that mattered most to me, whether it was healthcare or our nation's foreign policy, or even many of our domestic policies around education and, and immigration, were moving in a direction that just didn't speak to the values that I understood to be American values. So it was in combination with this, uh, the marches that were happening. I attended the Women's March in 2017 as a, a woman, a physician, as someone who believed in science and believed that it was outrageous that we could elect a man to, to the highest office of our country who didn't have respect for some of these fundamental um, mm-hmm. things that I found so um, so important that were ingrained in me as important. And so I found myself recognizing that there was a real gap in what I wanted to see for mm-hmm. our country and what we actually had uh, as representatives. Mm-hmm. And so when I learned that our representative, my congressman, was running for a different seat and it was going to be an open seat, um, it seemed like there was a moment where I could mm-hmm. use what I had learned, I could use my experience, my expertise, and uh, and drive a different kind of voice into into the representative body. Mm-hmm. And was, was this a decision you reached kind of on your own or did you talk to family and friends like in other words did you to, to me like I, I think if I were entertaining something like this the first thing I would be like I would say to my friend do you think I could do this like do do I seem like the kind of person do I you know, you know that's exactly what I did uh-huh. that's exactly oh. what I did and so in social media's uh, power. That's exactly huh. what I did. And it made it really easy. First, I had to you know, talk to myself mm-hmm. and say, is this something that I personally believe that I can do? Right. Um, but then, you know, aside from my own thoughts, you do want to bounce your ideas off of others mm-hmm. in this world and get some kind of um, validation that you're not totally off base. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I threw it out there to my friends, to my family. Of course, I talked to my husband first and foremost. He was the most encouraging. Nice. Um, and, you know, I threw it out there on Facebook. Facebook and I said, hey, friends and family, I'm thinking about doing this mm-hmm. because of, you know, X, Y, and Z reasons. And what do you all think? And who can you put me in touch with to talk to to flesh this out a bit more and mm-hmm. see is this truly mm-hmm. a good idea? Is it not a good idea? And um, and that's really where it, it took on a lot of momentum and it grew from this idea that was, um, that was a bit wild and, and rogue into a real plan mm-hmm. and a real course of action. Nice. And you... Did you second guess your friends who were supporting you? Did you think maybe they're just doing this because they like me? Or again, I'm I'm only mm-hmm. giving you my internal psyche when I when I say that. I would just wonder like what what do people actually see in me that make you know that makes them think I could do this? Did you did you wonder that? Or what, put I, another way, what do you think they saw in you um, that made them say, yeah, I, I could see Nadia doing a good job in this leadership role. I think so many of my friends and family members and, you know, acquaintances really felt similar to me that mm-hmm. we needed a different kind of body of representation, mm-hmm. that it was sorely lacking that we didn't have a single woman physician in Congress, understanding that so many decisions were being made around mm-hmm. women's health. Um, so examples like that where people could recognize, for example, that we don't have 
you know, I, I never ran on identity politics, but identity is an issue mm-hmm. in, in today's political landscape as well. We don't have a single Muslim woman in Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have anyone who is of the Afghan American background. Yeah. In Congress and Afghanistan is a huge issue for America. And so for all these reasons, there were different people who would say, yes, we do need someone like you Mm -hmm. in office, um, helping to guide those decisions and being part of the conversation. And so people who knew me, knew my work, knew my ideas, knew my values, um, pushed for me to go ahead and take that leap. Nice, nice. You you mentioned the word identity politics, and I've been thinking a lot... um, about kind of what, what what do people mean when they talk about identity? Because like in academia, for example, we don't necessarily talk about someone's identity when when we speak of uh, needing a plurality of approaches to a problem or something. But we'll we'll speak of interdisciplinarity, and in a way, like one could think of one's religious background, one's set of experiences, one's geographic background as a type of discipline. In other words, like you, you, you know, you, you've, you've wrestled with certain problems, you have approaches that you use to solve certain problems, you have a data set that you bring to um, a, a collaboration, if you mm-hmm. will, if you think of lawmaking as a kind of collaboration. So uh, almost in an academic sense, uh, you know, it, it makes sense to think of these things in terms of interdisciplinarity. Like you, you, you know things and uh, have approaches mm-hmm. to things that other people in Congress don't have. So you can you could call it identity politics, or you could just call it interdisciplinarity. It seems to me. I love that, yeah. and I think we use the same approach in medicine. Yeah, where we understand exactly. now that the best patient care comes from a multidisciplinary approach, where yeah. you you bring in the many different aspects yeah, yeah. Of, of what's going to give the patient the best outcome. Yeah, yeah, and so well, so you you, you brought up medicine, and that uh, that brings me to one of my uh, my big questions about um, the the transferability of of leadership skill in other words if if you're a leader in one area if you're a good baseball coach does that mean you'd make a good general or does it make you a good ceo of a company or whatever and and you ran under the name dr nadia um and you know you you wanted to feature the 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 training and experience you had as a physician as as kinds of things that would help you uh you craft laws and um as uh, I, I've noted many times, this is a very ancient idea, and I, and I wonder. Well, first, I want to ask you, um, kind of, what what is it about uh, being a doctor that you think can make someone a good congresswoman? Like, uh, could you could you identify traits in a doctor? Sure, and I've had to give that a good amount of thought, mm-hmm. and that was part of my you know self reflection before even entering uh, the field. And for one, I think that when you're when you're trained in medicine, you're trained to approach a problem very objectively. You're not trained to approach it as, you know, any particular kind mm-hmm. of background that you're coming with. You're not you don't bring a lot of baggage to it. You just look at a problem objectively and say, you know, what are the symptoms? What diagnosis can I reach? What mm-hmm. data can back up that that particular diagnosis and what are the treatment options mm-hmm. um, that can get us out of this quagmire that are evidence-based and and sound. And so that approach, I think in politics would really benefit uh, our, our, our lawmakers, when yeah. you take a look at a problem and say, you know, what is the best possible solution for this that will benefit the majority? And yeah. that's... Um, yeah, well, did, did you find... I mean, w- when you say that that approach would be very helpful, I think there's an implicit criticism that that approach is not being taken. I mean, you, you mentioned kind of belief in science at the outset. D- did you find, uh, as, as you were approaching this this role did, did you find examples of people in Congress who were just really not not fluent in um, you know healthcare law or how healthcare worked or other other areas like that that you, you that, that almost like motivated you kind of gave you added fuel to like no we you know we need to be having this kind of conversation as opposed to that yeah uh, I think absolutely I mean there there's healthcare law and then there's the implementation of healthcare and what it actually mm-hmm. will translate into in a hospital, in a clinic, you know, in the, in the real world. Um, and if you see the conversations that are being had and, and the, the, the concept that preexisting conditions, for example, might no longer be protected, that is such a wild concept for anyone who Mm -hmm. believes that 
we should provide health care because it is the best thing to do, not just on a moral basis, but on a on a community health basis mm-hmm. as well. The better our individual health is, the better our community health is, that actually comes back to us. And so mm-hmm. it comes full circle and, and, and brings us individual health improvements. Um, so understanding, you know, on the campaign trail, I would go around and, and listen to some other people talk. And there is sort of this party line mm-hmm. uh, so many times, depending on which party you're in, yeah. of what angle you want to take on what should happen in healthcare. Mm-hmm. When in the real world, it has to be a much more nuanced conversation. It's got to be a much more thoughtful conversation. Mm-hmm. I wasn't hearing that. And that's mm-hmm. why I really wanted to insert someone's voice who actually had worked both in a clinic, uh, right. in a hospital, had seen different kinds of diseases, and mm-hmm. understood the implications for a family. Nice, nice. Well, I, I wanted, uh, again, on this uh, theme of the physician as a leader, I, I, I was going to ask you if you'd read a, a passage um, from Plutarch's Life of Alexander and talking about how, um, how Alexander learned the art of medicine from Aristotle and, and really cared about it. But I, I, was, I wanted to ask you if you would read it and maybe share your thoughts about it. I have a couple questions for you that, that kind of arise uh, out of this, if, if you would take a sure. stab at this. In my opinion, Alexander's love of the art of healing was inculcated in, in him by Aristotle preeminently, for he was not only fond of the theory of medicine, but actually came to the aid of his friends when they were sick and prescribed for them certain treatments and regimens as one can gather from his letters. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So presumably greatest leader in the ancient world or most uh, famous great leader in the ancient world also uh, practiced medicine. What do you think about that? I mean, in truth, you know, I've I've been asked many times, what is it that being a physician also has in common with being a leader, mm-hmm. uh, a representative, or an aspiring representatives, and then also in connecting that with the other hat that I wear, which is in writing about a fictional character's yeah. journey right. through a fictional setting, and I've been able to boil it down to this concept that you have to be really invested in the way policy, the way context affects an individual's life. Mm -hmm. And that happens as a physician. So when I walk into a room to greet a family, to learn what it is that ails their child, I have to be taking a look not only at the singular symptoms that they might be reporting, but also at the context, you know, what kind of poverty situation are they living in? What kind of access Mm -hmm. to healthcare do they have? What kinds of barriers are in their life? And the same thing happens when I'm writing a story. I can't just write about a character that's floating through space. You yeah. have to write about a character yeah, that yeah. is touched by policy, by wars, by um, by so many different factors that are really political mm-hmm. in nature. And so, as a as a you know an aspiring representative or as someone who is taking a look at how the political landscape is affecting my community, it was the same. It was, what are our policies? How are they impacting people on a very everyday level? Yeah, and, and to me, what what's so interesting about what you're describing there and, and this passage in, in Alexander is that it's such a patient-focused approach to things. In other words, you're, you're not, as you're narrating the story, you're not thinking to yourself, how am I going to get paid? How much am I going to get paid? Like, am I going to get honored for this? Am I going to get respect? I mean, it's very... Um, you know, we often talk about uh, leadership as being a servant kind of activity. I mean, I, at, physicians used to be seen in this light. I don't know how often, you know, you probably know the data better than I do, like how uh, how people perceive the motives of their doctors. But, you know, when, when I was growing up, I'm sure when you were growing up, like being a physician was a noble profession because we actually believed there were people out there who cared about our well-being first and foremost that they 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 got into this profession yes they were going to be able to put food on the table but they actually were driven by this motive and and i think you know maybe we've lost this in the field of medicine uh it feels uh quite likely that we've lost it in the field of politics in other words most people imagine, you know, there, there, there must be something ulterior to why politicians get into to what they're doing. Either, you know, it's a lobbyist or maybe it's their mm-hmm. own constituents. But, you know, when, I'm sure when a, uh, a Democratic representative gets elected, the, uh, the Republicans, uh, people who voted Republican automatically assume, OK, that person's just going to help out 
uh, his or her constituents, and I'm going to have to wait two more years or four years or whatever it is to get my, you know, my line to see the doctor. Like, I, I, I can't see the doctor right now because uh, the doctor's not working in my best interest. But I, I think what you're doing can do a lot to kind of redeem that image of the of the politician as opposed to the politician as the former business person or even a, a lawyer or something. I think that's... There's a there's a lot of truth in that, and I think that's why the word politician has taken on such a negative connotation for so many. Um, you know, the word physician still, I think, conjures up a lot of positives in people's minds. Yeah. But even in that regard, uh, and on that word, things are changing a bit. And I really believe it's because we've polluted what was a service industry, what was a service capacity, mm-hmm. with a lot of big business, yeah. and that's really changed the way people view medicine as consumers uh, instead of as patients mm-hmm. who are there to receive the benefits of this yeah. service, um, where we've you know contaminated it with things as trivial as Yelp reviews. And wow. we are yeah. really, you know, reviewing people and rating them as if they were, you know, making our bed sheets or yeah. it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's just been reduced to something that's very, very different. And that I think also comes back on people who are providing that service, the, the physicians mm-hmm. and the, uh, the allied healthcare professionals where they're really now viewing themselves all as, you know, just being rated on a scale of, of one to five stars, then they're right. going to treat that, that their, their everyday job as the same. And, well, and, and they're confined to, to business models that require them to see the patient for five or ten minutes and then move on and be as efficient as possible and perhaps never mm-hmm. establish a relationship. Yeah, uh, the, I, I see the same thing to some extent in, in academia. From time to time you will see administrators in particular try to introduce the language of customer to, you know, th- these are not our students, uh, these are our customers and we are uh, service providers, not in the sense of servant leaders or anything right. like that, or mentors or anything. But we we deliver content to them. We we train them to have certain skills. But it, it completely uh, erases the the human element of the teacher uh, pupil or teacher student relationship. The same as a, as a doctor patient yeah. can be eroded by. No, I think you see that. the same things happening. The same trends. I mean, hospitals are building big, fancy waiting rooms. They want to look like luxury hotels. Mm-hmm. Um, universities are building out new and uh, right. and bigger centers to attract a, a certain you know body of students that right. they can. Yeah. You know, reel in the, the right tuition, and and that I think is it's just a misdirection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, it, it, it's almost like we're becoming staff at a country club mm-hmm. or something. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, the the other thing, getting back to this passage with uh, uh, Alexander and and Aristotle, uh, I, I like that. You know, a- Alexander is is supported by a philosopher uh, who also he just happened to be into medicine and and biology and things like that um and in in thinking about your own leadership are there any philosophers intellectuals thinkers that you could point to that that you really feel like bolster you that that kind of function as an alexander maybe people you read and either read or knew in college or continue to read um for for ideas about political theory or things like that you know, I think in that regard, my my best examples probably come from the contemporary world, mm-hmm. and I take a look at, um, most specifically, I actually had to write about this for another reason, and I took a look at um, my journey with writing. I write about women in Afghanistan mm-hmm. who are who have survived some really harrowing situations, some really oppressive regimes. Um, And along the way, I happened to be in Australia as part of a book tour. And while I was there, I was doing a book talk in a small bookshop, and it was just a small group of women, and we had a surprise visitor who dropped by. And it was a woman whose children happened to live in that town. But she herself was an obstetrician, Mm -hmm. and uh, she was an Afghan woman who was just visiting her children. And so she was not only an obstetrician gynecologist in Afghanistan, but she'd made a detour in her career path and decided to serve as a member of parliament. Mm -hmm. And so she'd been elected to that particular seat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in this book talk, we were discussing the really horrific years of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan and what it was like for women in particular. 
And, you know, here I am giving this talk about my book. And, Which book is this, by the way? Uh, I, I was talking to them about a house without windows. Okay. And in that book, there's a woman who's been accused of murdering her husband. She's whisked off to prison, and she goes through this really convoluted, influx uh, justice system mm -hmm. where she's people are not sure whether or not she committed the crime, and uh, and she's at the mercy of these new laws and new approaches. And so here I am giving this talk as an American-born Afghan-American writer, and understanding that I have in the audience here a woman who has lived through what you're uh, writing really about. terrible times yeah. in Afghanistan. And really is the voice of authority. And so it was really reassuring and, and uh, relieving to know that she was nodding her head along mm -hmm. the way as I was speaking. And the women in the room were kind of periodically looking at her, like fact-checking me. Yeah, nice. Um, but then at one point she decided to speak. And I said, you know, we would love for you to share your own input. And, mm -hmm. and she did mention the one line that she mentioned that really stuck with me was that it was one of the darkest periods of her life was living under the Taliban regime. And understanding that she could come out of that and decide that she wasn't just going to go and become an obstetrician mm -hmm. and serve people, but that she would be bold enough and take on the challenges very specific to Afghanistan and women running for office in Afghanistan to actually open herself up to, the, to even more criticism and seek to be a representative nice. yeah. and a game changer in the country. And so when I think about, you know, well, how tough would it be for me to step up? here in mm -hmm. this context in the back of my mind is that conversation with her and her nice. quiet yeah. bravery and courage and knowing that if she had backed down mm -hmm. that country would be lesser for it and so we do need to take courageous viewpoints we do need to take mm -hmm. these really big steps if we want to see a different kind of um, representation so you, so it sounds like you almost had a a template or an example uh, in, in the back of your own mind informing your decision to run that was activating you and giving you a little bit of courage and uh, yeah that's cool yeah Very or good. just a simple reality check of yeah. like you know it ain't that bad <laughs> yeah yeah well actually that that's uh, something I've thought about a lot um, from reading your your novel I'm, I'm reading when the moon is low right now and uh, I think it's at the very beginning. Um, I think it's the is it the narrator Fareba? Am I saying mm -hmm. her name right? That's right. Um, she she I think she's the one who's talking about the way they um, idealize French culture and like kind of fashion and and luxury and and things like that. And and th these are people who um, they they seem to be able to find happiness with a lot less uh, material. Uh, a lot fewer material things than in modern America say that that we uh, that we seem to need in order to be happy. Like, does that does that inf does that kind of worldview of um, being able to to find happiness with less does that inform kind of your political outlook uh, at all? Do you think? I think it's. Um it informs my day to day, so it's got to be in there in the political as well. It's mm -hmm. something that I try to ingrained in my children yeah. too um, where we're very fortunate that we're able to provide for them in ways mm -hmm. that their lives are very comfortable yeah I, I almost but not I to almost, I'm sorry mm -hmm. I didn't, go ahead I was just gonna say I almost feel like your campaign slogan should have been it ain't that bad like, <laughs> you know like be be aware of the the struggles that other people face Exactly. I think there's um, there's a bit of a balancing act right where you want to you want to impart on people that it ain't that bad. We can take that step. We can mm -hmm. do better. We just have to come together and work at it quite mm -hmm. a bit. Um, but at the same time of, uh, at the same time, imparting on people that it is that bad that we do have to step yeah. up because yeah. if we don't, we're, we're in a really tough situation and things are only going to get worse, uh, just by the trajectory that we're moving in. Right, right, right. Oh, very good. Um, we, we, we've mentioned the, the campaign, uh, trail a lot and I want to, uh, I want to transition to that uh, in just a second, but um, I, I remember that I was uh, at your uh, your watch party for the uh, primary uh, election, and uh, your husband and I were like compulsively following social media and like getting every time five votes had been cast, we were like you know looking for updates, and at the, the whole time I, I, I was observing you and like you were completely composed and relaxed and. Like like a soldier who had you know fought a really hard fight, a really thoughtful you know invested all of your energy, but you were just completely at peace with whatever the outcome 
would be is that is that an accurate read of what was going through your mind or do, are you just a good poker face uh, no I, I think that's accurate I think by that day I was comfortable that I had done everything that mm-hmm. I could and yeah. I'd spoken to as many people as I could that we'd gotten um, you know knocked on as many doors as we could mm-hmm. with the particular you know people power that we had and and the team that we'd amassed and uh, you know I'm also trained as someone who's worked in an emergency room that um, unless someone's dying you're not running um and i knew at that moment that whatever the outcome was we'd put in our best effort and uh and we were going to be at peace with whatever decision was made and there was nothing more that i could do about it in that particular moment um and so being frantic wasn't going to help me yeah well and and i was thinking at the time again another analogy between the the world of medicine and the world of politics is that I, th- I think in many ways we, we could be better served by sober people. I mean, because, you know, when, when you're in politics, it's going to be 24-7, uh, you know, decisions and issues and responses and mm-hmm. things like that. And having like a, a stead, the, he- the steady hand of a physician uh, kind of navigating those waters, if I can use two metaphors at once, like could, could be really valuable. Absolutely. Just keep calm and carry on. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, so so to, to transition to the the campaign now, as as, as I recall, uh, you you garnered ten percent of the roughly ten percent of the vote in the Democratic primary, which uh, ain't that bad, uh, given the fact that this was your first foray mm-hmm. into politics. It was a very big field; millions upon millions of dollars were spent. You were a complete unknown, and yet you managed to get like thousands of people uh, buy into you, buy into to your message, like. Going going from the the beginning of the campaign to how how you, how you thought it was going to go to to where you where you ended up. What do you think were the biggest lessons as a leader uh, that you you kind of learned in in putting yourself out there? Yeah, I think you know it, it, we did surprise people because um, when I started off, there were questions of of who is she, why is she running, mm. um, who's put her up to this, all, all of these kinds mm. of strange Questioning questions that, that yeah that uh. that I started to hear in this this general buzz that was around us and and sort of being discounted because if you're not part of a political machine, then what are your chances? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've surprised people that in the end, I came in third out of a. A field of eight, and you know that ten percent actually did put us in in third, and yeah. we were able to get over six thousand votes. And you know, I don't have six thousand family members <laughs> living in, in my district, yeah. so clearly there was there was a movement that was there. Um, I think I learned quite a bit from beginning to end, and one of the one of the things that I think not only I learned, but uh, you know, the community kind of learned is that we are ready for different kinds of voices Mm -hmm. to be part of the conversation. We're ready for different kinds of people to step up and we're ready to question what do we think of as qualifications for running for office? Mm -hmm. Is it prior office? Is it that you have to be, you know, sort of tagged by, by people as part of a hierarchy or is it a certain dollar amount that qualifies you to run a, a campaign? Mm-hmm. Um, and understanding that we need to be real thoughtful about those conversations if we want to have better leadership or leadership that we believe represents our values in a more direct way. Right. Um, I've learned that there is nothing that trumps, pardon my words, but there's nothing that beats you know getting out there and talking to people very directly. Because uh-huh. once people... And that's where we found that the the most um, convincibility was in sitting down with people on a one-to-one, in a group, um, in any kind of format where people could actually get a sense of who you are. People want to know who you are, mm-hmm. what drives you, and what kind of person are you. They want to they want a sense that they can get to know you, right, that they can right. have some access to you, that you care, that you want to listen um, and, and that's where I do think to go back to the physician piece that that, that background served me well because mm-hmm. I'm used to walking into a room and not doing all the talking. Right, right. Yeah, and, and it, it sounded like uh, you, you had tremendous success at, at winning people over just by that approach. The, the only challenge is like in a district of, you know, where 80,000 people are going to vote or something, like how many of those do you have time to actually meet? Is there is there a way to... To facilitate that, yeah. Um, you, you you mentioned the kind of the challenge of, of people people's reaction to you when you you threw your hat in the ring. I think 
for me personally, again, not that I've ever run for any leadership role or whatever, but um, I, I see myself as a very straight shooter. I see myself as very transparent. I may be wrong about that. I'm, maybe I'm super way more complex than I, I think, but I think I, I leave it all out there. And, and I, it, so to me, I, I find it very frustrating at times when I think I'm revealing everything there is to know about myself and I'm giving people what they're in and, and they still have these misapprehensions like what was well a did you experience that or are you the kind of person where you think yeah like i put it all out there i'm not particularly guarded or i don't have anything to hide i thought that i was sharing everything about myself and yet i'm still having a challenge getting people to understand who i think i am did you did you experience that and yeah you know i think what comes to mind there was uh, and this will come back to the identity piece where um, I never really launched myself as a Muslim candidate, and mm-hmm. yet people would ask questions. You mm-hmm. know, we'd get messages. Uh, um, well, I just want to know what her religion is, uh-huh. and you wouldn't really know what the motivation for the question was. I see. I had other people who would write in and and who who wanted to see a Muslim person running, but weren't sure if I was Muslim or not, uh-huh, because I, I don't yeah, yeah. maybe fit a stereotypical image, a uh-huh. physical image of what a Muslim woman looks like, just yeah. not wearing a hijab or, or not wearing a, a you know mm-hmm. particular kind of clothing. And so all of a sudden, my my faith became a question mm-hmm. of where on one side people would say, well, she's not Muslim enough. And right. on the other side, well, people are, well, I don't know, because right. she, she may be Muslim. And, and understanding that there's really no way to please everyone but to be comfortable in finding that middle ground and not having to hide or mm-hmm. exploit your identity in order to actually be the kind of representative that you want to be. Right, right. It must be a really tricky balance. Um, were, were there other, you, you mentioned religion, were there other aspects of yourself that you were, you, you thought or you wanted to communicate or you wanted to share and it would, that you faced some kind of obstacle to do that? You know, interestingly, the way these candidate forums are set up is you, you have, you know, a, a setup of questions that are that are posed to each mm-hmm. of the candidates. And then you've got usually like a minute or, or 30 seconds or right. whatever it is to respond. Yeah. And so the responses to these questions, which kind of got recycled a bit, whether it was on health care or foreign policy or, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, views on Trump, you have to boil it down to a soundbite. And a soundbite is, is truthfully not enough time right. to have a thoughtful discussion on the issues. And, you know, how do you boil down what you want to do in healthcare to 30 seconds or 60 right. seconds or even two minutes? It's impossible to reason what we need to do mm-hmm. in healthcare in that amount of time. And so I think a lot of our conversations become very superficial. And you really are, you know, right. voting on a personality, an image without Caricature, getting yeah. exactly without getting down to the nitty gritty of what actually needs to be done. So if, if you could propose a mechanism for getting, let, let's say money were no object, media outlets were no object, resources, no object, what, what would be the mechanism you would like to propose for, let, let's say, you know, 10 people want to run for this uh, position and they're competing for 80,000 votes or whatever it is like how, how would you do it differently i mean i, I agree with, mm-hmm. with all the um the faults to the system you identify like what what would you like to see that's really tough it's tough to design a real system i think one of the biggest issues for all of us is money mm-hmm. because if you have um the kind of elect election system where a candidate can spend soaring amounts of money um, whereas other candidates may not be able to rally the same kinds of funds through fundraising or through personal right. investment, then there's a real inequality, and that inequality translates into marketing power, and marketing power is a very real thing. Otherwise, we wouldn't all be drinking Coca-Cola, right? <laughs> sure. Um, and so that, I think, is a, is a factor that we've got to take a real close look at, is how much are we comfortable with money being in mm-hmm. politics? Because both in terms of how candidates are able to drive their message out there and and deliver this image of themselves to people and and reach people across a vast district that's, you know, a couple of hours across it to drive. Um, And in terms of how we judge viability of campaigns where, you know, I'd fill out a questionnaire 
from organizations who are decrying that we have too much money in politics. And yet the you know number three question on the list after what's your name and right. what office are you running for is how much money yeah. have you raised right, 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 right. and so you know no, money a, yeah. money is an essential factor in how we yeah. end up with the representatives that we do and that that's often the way it's written up in the newspapers like is this a viable candidate well how much money have they raised which is another way of saying like either you're really good at the grassroots thing getting oh yeah a, a we would get calls people. at midnight yeah. from reporters saying what's your filing report you know right at the uh, deadline uh, of the quarterly oh, filing to see how much money you've raised yeah. that deadline is so huge i never would have appreciated it but yeah. you would see that right at midline those reports at midnight those reports get filed and the reporters are picking them up and throwing the numbers into what is probably a prepackaged equation right of saying this candidate has this much and this right. candidate has this much and that that in turn influ- whoever reads that article is now yeah. having their choice influenced by mm-hmm. uh, by those numbers so okay take take money out of it i mean you you mentioned the the forums that you're in like where, where you only get to know the person for a minute or two minutes or something like that like let's say money is no object or let's say everybody can only spend a thousand dollars on a campaign you still have the challenge of get you know getting to uh, unfold your personality and your views and your character and values like to me, as I as I think about this, I don't know if you you would agree. Like, the the only solution might be to for, for citizens themselves to become more invested in getting to know their 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 politicians. And I don't know how you convince people. That There's it's no worth other way, really. I mean, people who are voting need to actually put in some time. Yeah. And I think one of the ways is at least candidate forums, I think are really good actually, because you do get to see people speaking mm-hmm. live in person. Yeah. Um, you know, what do they say yeah. off the cuff? Are they able to handle a question that mm-hmm. comes at them, you know, from left yeah. field? Um, and, and navigating through that is, is something that I think represents what they'll end up doing mm-hmm. when they're in office. Um, it, there's also, I think a lot of benefits to having just, you know, we can use, the internet we can use social media to have people spread their message out there and get to know people as well mm-hmm. um you know the league of women voters like what they're kind of doing is laying out the issues and having candidates respond with where they stand mm-hmm. with the you know they are sound bites as well but at least having it in sort of this objectively laid out format where it's accessible to everyone is is another thing of value right right is there is there anything uh on the campaign trail you wish you had said more or some aspect of your leadership or something that you value that that you wish you given more resources or given more opportunities this was something you wanted to tell people about your yourself you know i think it was it's really tough to balance being that bold voice that you want to be Mm -hmm. and making sure that you're not losing people along the way um you you mean you think a bold voice can lose people i think sometimes a bold voice would frighten people where they're not sure where is this going to go um so i just finding it takes a while to find your own balance i think when you're when you're throwing your voice out there um but what i what i think we've learned along the way is that people do respond to the honesty and Mm -hmm. so being very direct being very honest with people if I'd had more time, I probably would have given people just more of myself because mm-hmm. that's what people really responded very positively mm-hmm. to. And now that we've had more time to go back and read through people's emails and uh, in a more thoughtful way, this mm-hmm. is like the second read of them, oh, nice. but understanding that people just really wanted more of me, of my ideas, of my personal experiences. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, that's a learning piece that I'll use going forward. And whatever yeah. I'm going to be doing is that getting comfortable with with just sharing yeah. more of myself and my own life and my viewpoints with people nice nice you, you, you've used the word we a lot uh who, who is the we in your description of this this campaign there's so many people in we yeah. I, I mean when i think about the campaign i can't possibly think of it as anything that i did mm-hmm. on my own because i was rarely by myself mm-hmm. <laughs> so for the last i mean nine months i was with a lot of people mm-hmm. and so they are the we you know whether it's my husband my, my father who the two of them were in competition for how many doors they could knock oh, and canvassing nice. uh-huh. um or you know so many members of the 
family, but friends, new mm-hmm. friends, people I met along the way, uh, fellow physicians, mm-hmm. uh, my staff and people yeah. who came on starting off as volunteers and then actually mm-hmm. joining on as a full staff member, mm-hmm. whether they were new to politics or an old hat. I mean, there were so many people that actually made this possible. Mm-hmm. Did, did you find that it was pretty natural and easy for you to kind of build this this kind of following or did you have to sell yourself sell yourself to them persuade them or were they just like no we you know we, we know nadia we get nadia like sign us up was it that i didn't have to sell myself to them actually they and they're the ones that you know when i said that i put out a post on facebook mm-hmm. all of a sudden it was like this wild idea yeah garnered momentum that I had not imagined. Mm. And then it became a, a thing of like, well, I can't let them down and we do have to push this. And, mm-hmm. and there, we really do have something here and people were responding to it in a really positive way. And so it, it, it became a true, what I believe is a movement. You know, mm. I don't know how many people you need to have on board to right. call it a movement, right. but for me it was a movement and I felt like I was mm. part of it. Were uh, part of it, uh, but were you the leader of it? Do you, did you use that word to think about what you were doing? Like, what should a leader do now? Am I a leader? Like, there's uh, I, I've given a lot of thought to what is a leader, and, uh, and especially in this particular role as a member of Congress, you know, what do you need to be doing? Well, you need to be a representative, right? So we mm-hmm. call it a leader, but it's also a representative. Right. So part of what you're doing is representing the people and their ideas and their concerns and their priorities, and not just one sliver of people, but you should be representing. Right all people and so you know like you were mentioning earlier a member of congress is representing the democrats of right. his or her district and the republicans of his or her district they're representing everyone but it is also a leadership role and so you do have to add in what you bring mm-hmm. to the to the table and, and why and then otherwise you know why not anybody else who would just pull the people and say what should i do with this particular situation so right, right. i think there's there's a balancing act and the leader is supposed to be divining what the people want to see happen in a forward-moving direction. Mm-hmm. Well, and also you've got to consolidate a lot of different constituencies. Like one constituency might say, these are my interests. I want you to, to enact these. But then another constituency is saying the same or saying a right. thing about their own interests. So how do you come up with a plan? You've got that, to be able to reconcile yeah. two different viewpoints yeah. and provide some sound reasoning yeah. for why you're going to go with option A or why you're going to tweak option A mm-hmm. and make it a look a little bit more like option B. Um, to provide what will be best for right. everyone. Did, can you think of a specific instance where you were doing that? Kind of, kind of as, as you were, you, you know, you, you start out with a, a vision, a set of concerns, but then you're also expected to to speak about policies, and then th- that's when you know the rubber hits the road, and you've got all these constituencies and trying to craft a policy that that ple- either pleases everyone or at least gives uh, everyone something of what they need. Was there, can you think of a specific example? I think healthcare is a natural for that, where yeah. you'd see, you know, a lot of people from one body uh, would say, absolutely, we need healthcare for all. We need to institute, you know, a Medicare for all kind of program. And that's, that, that was it. They wanted nothing short mm-hmm. of that. And then on the other side, of course, you see people crying out that this is socialized medicine. This is absolutely the antithesis of what we should be going for. And, and this right. doesn't make any sense in our system. Uh, but understanding that, there is a basic need for health care. There is also a need for understanding how are we going to pay for it, mm-hmm. of asking those questions and being able to answer them right. in a thoughtful way and say, well, what approach would actually work in practice and not just be this theoretical mm-hmm. um, balloon that we can have floating around and, and people chasing after right, it. Right, right. Did, did, you, did you come away from the campaign feeling like, you had some pretty novel answer, novel solutions to those problems that people haven't. So my put plan for healthcare was not replicated by anybody else, and and people on the ground mm-hmm. when you actually sat down with people, they they responded well to it. Where I said, yes, we do need to move in that direction, but let's take mm-hmm. a, a look at some of the key pieces of how do we pay for healthcare and where's our money going right now, mm-hmm. and breaking it down to actually, you know, well, there's a huge sink when you look at the insurance companies and the insurance industry and how much of an industry it truly has has become. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having conversations like that, talking about how we can incrementally move in a positive direction and, you know, do things in a thoughtful, practical, and yet move towards uh, right. a level of idealism that people could be comfortable with right, and, right. And, and actually put their arms around. Nice. Well, your, your mention of idealism takes us perfectly to uh, the, the segment I, I, I call telling the story of America. Since you 
since you are a physician uh, and you have diagnosed at least some of this nation's <laughs> ills and problems, you began by talking about the antipathy to science and women that uh, is you know are the hallmarks of this current administration. Um, so, so going both with your uh, physician um, nature and your storytelling nature, uh, if, if you were to, to let's say, diagnose um, the the American character as it is right now, as as you observe it in your experience and on social media and entertainment, um, what what would you say are are our strengths and weaknesses as a country in terms of our character, in terms of our values, in terms of our behavior, these, these kinds of things? What, mm. what would you say? I think our, one of our strengths is and always has been empathy. Mm. Um, and people who are new to this country understand that, that coming here, Americans are very warm, they're welcoming, they're curious. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to engage in conversations and they want to learn. They want to help. I mean, look at the, the history of volunteerism in this country yeah. of, you know, putting yourself out there to help your neighbor, um, doing the neighborly thing. And that's that's a beautiful part of the American culture mm-hmm. that I think we are not losing because you see the outrage that comes out when we do something that doesn't fall in line. That mm-hmm. doesn't seem like the neighborly thing to do. Right. Um, and so that that outrage reassures me that we're okay at our core and that we'll be mm-hmm. fine. We just need to figure out the policies to get us there. Mm-hmm. I think part of our struggle, though, is in reconciling what we believe America to be with some of the truths of what America has done in the past years you know what was our role in vietnam what has our role been in many of these central american countries mm-hmm. um and sort of you know what have we done with history what have we done with history around slavery yeah. and how have we taught that mm-hmm. to students and, and if, if you were to reduce that to a certain character like how how, how would you character what, what are the character traits of a country that does the things that you were just describing like uh um, well, I'm just America thinking in like the protagonist in uh, Nadia's novel here. It is. Like, um, we are a flawed protagonist. Mm-hmm. You know, we're a protagonist that that needs a moment to reflect and and yeah. be honest about you know some of our past actions and motivations. Um, so, are we the perfect superhero? No. Are <laughs> right. we the villain? Absolutely not. Yeah. Um, what what but, kind of character development would you like to see us? go through like what what would you what would you like this nation to learn as a as a people in the next 10 or 20 years say i think we have to learn that the history has had a real uh has had a real impact on where we are currently Mm -hmm. and to understand that will help us redirect where we're going Mm -hmm. going forward so again whether i'm talking about foreign policy or domestic united states policies and the impact that it's had on groups of people in this country Mm -hmm. um you know what was the impact that we had on on japanese americans what's the impact on um on minority communities what has been the impact on members of certain bodies of faith of, Mm -hmm. of religious identities and understanding that if we're going to move forward and and be able to bring people together, then we do have to reconcile our past. Yeah. So, so you don't you don't buy the uh, the American philosophy, uh, or it's not the American philosophy, but the philosophy of some Americans of like, you know, leave me alone and I'll leave you alone and you know just go about my business. Kind of you don't know, like that live and let live approach. Uh, you know, I think it's really hard realistically to do that because we have to interact with each other. Mm-hmm. We have to walk down the street and walk into a grocery store and buy things from somebody else. Yeah. It's very hard to be, I mean, unless you want to live in a remote area of the country and be completely self-sufficient, yeah. you cannot unplug from society. And uh, society needs all of us to be engaged in some way, shape or form. I mean, you've, you're, you're part of, uh, you're represented by somebody. You are uh, a consumer in some ways. You are a benefactor of, you know, certain government programs. And so we're, we're mm-hmm. all bought in. Yeah. You know, cool. Um, so uh, America as the, the protagonist in need of a history lesson. So again, to tell this as a story, like, where, where does uh, where does America learn about its history in in your telling of it? Is it at the university? Do do more students need to be going to college? Should we be requiring more history courses of our uh, of our students? 
Um, do we need better public television and PBS specials about American history? Do we need, uh, th- this is one of my more radical ideas, and every time I propose it, people kind of laugh at it, but like, do we need um, to, uh, to, to better integrate ourselves in terms of our neighborhoods? Because it's very easy to self-segregate now. I mean, anybody who moves to another state probably knows as one of the first things am i moving to a blue state or a red state uh you can even know county by county probably you could even know it neighborhood by neighborhood should we be giving americans incentives like financial incentives to move into a a neighborhood that you know is not politically the same as yours or that you know comes with people of a different history like if if you were to tell this as a story with america as the protagonist which uh which uh, mode of yeah. character development should we all you know should we pick a fight with a foreign adversary and we all have to go to war in an, in a foreign country and then we we live together uh, yeah, there's in, nothing more consolidating con- than an outside enemy right, right so exactly like, yeah bring so, us so together which, what, yeah. what is what is the mechanism for a good old healthy war would uh, would really right. help yeah. us yeah. No. Right. Uh, I'm hopefully there are other <laughs> ways to hate. do it <laughs> hopefully there are other ways to bring people together I mean I think absolutely you do see some areas of the country where that that social integration is happening just in population shifts and mm. neighborhood changing uh, evolution there. I should think, we be more deliberate about it? Like I say, like should that's should an interesting concept. I mean, you know, give uh, Trump supporters incentives to go to Berkeley for college. Like if if you can show that your family was a Trump supporter and now you can go to Berkeley mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, get get to get get a scholarship to study gender studies or something like this, like that could work. I, I haven't played that out in my mind to see you know what the drawbacks would be. Um, but I, I think yeah. wherever we can foster, and that's one thing that I think our nation is really suffering from just divisiveness that is so toxic. Where yeah. if you are not aligned with one body and you don't make part of that being hating the other body then you, you almost yeah. don't belong. And, and that's a real threat, I think, to our, our national unity. Yeah. Um, well, and but, it's just so easy. Like, we're never... Uh, how many times are you actually face-to-face with somebody you disagree with, like, like deeply disagree with? It almost never happens, right? It'll yeah. happen over social media or, you know, competing sound bites or clips, even politicians. Like, politicians are not required to be in the same room when they disagree with each other. One hosts a press conference and says a nasty thing, and then the other one does it, you know, yeah. two doors down or It's or interesting. Whatever. I had a lot of nasty things said to me or yeah. about me yeah. uh, over the campaign course, not a single one of them to my face. Yeah, exactly. Not a single one of them exactly. to my I face. I think it's, it's much harder to be in civil, but now there, uh, there's so many uh, different ways of, of doing that. And, and as I say, it, it, it seems to just be easier and easier because you can select your friends on Facebook. You can pick the neighborhood you want to live in, you know, go to the, the college or the church or uh, whatever. And if, if there's not a if there's not some mechanism like a, a war against a hated enemy where we all have to be in the same tent together or the same room together, like it's very hard to uh, to humanize each other. In fact, it, you know, it usually works works the other way. So I just wonder. Um, I, by, by the way, if if you run for office again, and I want to ask you about that, I promise to go back and edit the part where you said it might be a good idea to send Trump supporters <laughs> to Berkeley because you probably don't right. get that. Yeah. Right. So, uh, um, yeah, but like what what is, what is the mechanism and, and do, does a federal government or a state government or something have a role to play in that, that integration? I, I wrestle with this a lot. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think there are some baby steps, though. Right. I mean, uh, understanding that sometimes you'll see pictures of textbooks and realize that, you know, we, we call it dated but yeah. really, it's it's just dishonest yeah, uh, right. visions of history right, and in right. certain uh, episodes in America's past, and and that's where I think you know public education is really important mm-hmm. to make sure we're delivering a quality public education, yeah. a, a real. Would you public outlaw education. homeschooling? I don't know if I'd go as far as outlawing it. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's always dangerous to just outlaw sure. anything. Yeah. Um, you just create this, you know. Well, I can't have it. Then why can't I have right, it? And now right. I want it mentality. Um, but I think the stronger our public education is the better, you know, the more you'll drive people towards it. People will want to go towards it. And that's one thing that I've said about, you know, well, gerrymandering or or how can we create this 
district mm-hmm. and keep it as a blue district. Well, you shouldn't really have to just gerrymander it and force it and shove it down people's throats. Right. You should create right. a party and an ideology and a package that actually attracts people to it and not right. just force it um, right, right. onto a body. But Yeah. So cool. Well, we're, we're almost out of time, but I did want to uh, come back to this question about your future in politics. Like, uh, you, you, you've, you've kind of laid out a whole uh, character development story for yourself in, in terms of, you know, you, ha- you have real concerns that aren't going away, right? I mean, it's not like you, you ran and like, oh, I don't need to run anymore because, you know, somebody yeah. else picked up the, the mantle and, you know, uh, fixed it or something. Uh, the problems are still there. You've got lots of campaign experience now. You have a very uh, supportive team. Uh, lots of people believe in you. They recognize your uh, leadership ability. You have, um, you know, templates of other people who have gone down that path. You mentioned the woman in Australia, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so where, where where does the story go uh, from here, do you think, for you? You know exactly where I'm going. It's, it's not, I, I haven't defined that yet. I know that I don't want to squander what we've been able to build. Mm-hmm. And to have that amount of faith and confidence put in me is something that I take very seriously. I don't take it lightly. Mm-hmm. So now it's a it's a question of how do I redirect these energies into um, in an effort that will make sense and, and benefit people. You know whether it's looking at the question of money in politics or mm-hmm. looking at you know how do we increase women representation mm-hmm. in in yep. Congress or or other areas of politics or empowering other people to run or taking another stab at it myself at another time and, and recognizing that there, this is part of a journey that you mm-hmm. don't just step up one day and, and automatically think that the first run is going to be a successful one, but rather that this is a, this is a team building initiative right, and right. this is a team building effort and this is laying a foundation for future runs or, um, you know, all of those are questions that I'm going to be answering for mm-hmm. myself and, and with people as I always do, because yeah, yeah. none of this can be done. Um, in right. a silo, it has to be done with people. Right, and and I should mention we're only what like a month out of the the primary, so it's not like you you need to have formulated in a completely new script of where your life should right. go. I, th- I think it's very healthy that you're uh, looking at all of those different possibilities. But as you said, the issues are still there. Right, yeah. our healthcare system is yeah, still yeah. in a in shambles. We still have um, people who are facing just brutal inequalities in the education system who are facing financial burdens that are unsustainable, whether it's around their education or around their health care. And all of these things need to be answered and dealt with. Right. So, okay, uh, to, to, to finish with the, the storyteller uh, metaphor, 50 years from now, what, what kind of America would you like to see your children who will be in their 50s by then? Uh, what kind of world would you like to see them what kind of America would you like to see them living in? Paint, paint us a picture. You know, for me as a pediatrician, um, everything comes back to what is our treatment of children? And there are many brilliant quotes around this, but mm-hmm. it is truly that the measure of society is how it treats its children or its most vulnerable. And that's where I'm hoping that the America of the future of my children's generation will be one in which we don't see images of children Mm. in cages where we don't see children being taken away from their parents, Mm. where we don't see children that are going without the kinds of health uh, care that they need or Mm. the kinds of education that will actually build them up and believe in them from the get go and not just shuttle them to the side and sort of discount them um, as, as useless or uh, hopeless. So uh, that's really the kind of America that I would like to see is one that provides an environment for the children that safeguards the planet, the resources, mm-hmm. and does so for all children, not just a select few. Yeah, and I have to say, I mean, I never really thought about it in the way you're, you're describing it, but I mean, at least on the face of it, that seems like a vision most people would buy into. Now, what, you know, how you get there, of course, we can have disagreements, but to to uh, lead the conversation, as it were, with that uh, vision in mind uh, and, and continually bring us back to that and keep asking, like, is this getting closer and closer or, you know, are the, the numbers of impoverished children rising? And if they're rising, that probably means what we're doing is not working. And right. if they're going down, then, you know, that, that would be a good measure. Well, well thank you uh, so much for that, that insight. And I, I always like to end with a, a question uh, from our leader about leadership. What is, if you could ask the, the wisest, smartest, uh, most knowledgeable person a question about 
leadership that is really uh, interesting and personal and meaningful to you, what what would that be? Do you think? Uh, Any mm. you know? I think that the toughest question really is how do you become a leader for everyone mm-hmm. um, and not just represent the select few mm-hmm. who are on the same mindset, but how do you start to reconcile and how mm-hmm. do you bring together all people? Mm-hmm. And that's really, I think, the question that our country has to face, not just me. Yeah, e- even in situations where you think you know the answer. You know, like as the physician, if you like, I know the cure here, but the patient doesn't want to take right. it. Like, how do you get the patient? And that's that's you know? truly, I think, what what ends up happening in medicine, where you know what's actually in the best mm-hmm. interest, but you've got this, you know, you've got either a, a patient or a family member who's driving in a, a completely other uh, lane. Interesting. Um, and so, you know, in our country, I look at our president. Our president is not acting in the best interests of everyone, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, is he acting in the best interests of some? Sure, but but to be a true leader, he would really have to um, right. be moving in a direction that benefits all right. to some extent and he's not yeah well fantastic nadia hashimi thank you so much uh for sharing this uh we wish you all the best going forward i will i will go on record as saying i think uh not only are you a you know a good uh candidate for uh future uh house of representatives leadership but uh we need more physicians and we need more storytellers uh, helping us uh, find our way in in American politics. But again, thanks uh, thanks so much for joining us uh, today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the conversation. You bet.